Greetings, everybody. This is Adam. I'm just doing a little bit of an intro before we get today's show kicked off. I did the interview that you're about to hear today in, in, in this episode with Branko Marchatich, staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, late last week. So it's a little bit dated in terms of being completely up to speed with current events, but nothing major since then has happened. The major event is going to be happening today. I'm recording this intro on Tuesday. That's March 10th. Tuesday, of course, being the day that a number of really key states are registering their votes in the Democratic Party primary race. Michigan, of course, being the most key state that uh, will be voting today. If Bernie can keep up in Michigan, he will certainly live to fight another day and likely stay in the race through late April when some of the other states register their votes. If Bernie tanks today in Michigan, um, I'm not sure that he'll have to pull out, but it will be a rough road ahead for sure. So <laughs> we're all sort of collectively holding our breath uh, today. I'm trying to keep an optimistic mindset about uh, the challenges that lay ahead with respect to Michigan. There's no question that the, the mainstream Democratic Party, the mainstream media, and the full-on Trump derangement syndrome being experienced by the American public right now is very much working against Bernie Sanders. And in the middle of my interview with Branko Marchatich that you're about to listen to, the news broke that Elizabeth Warren would not be endorsing Sanders. And uh, five, six days later, that looks to still be the case. Warren has not endorsed Sanders, and it seems evident that she will not be endorsing Sanders, as I predicted. And Warren's somewhat predictable failure to endorse Bernie Sanders and stay true to her progressive roots has proven absolutely catastrophic to Bernie Sanders. We needed a united progressive movement, which perhaps may have been an illusion all along, as I've been arguing in many places, but we needed that united progressive movement that we all anticipated or some of us anticipated and expected once the primary shook out and the victor reigned supreme, whether that be Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. We all expected them to stand arm in arm on the stage when one of them conceded to the other and join forces. But that hasn't happened, and it has been a remarkably devastating outcome for Bernie Sanders. He needed to look electable. He needed a win. He needed to appear to have a broader coalition that was backing him, and that hasn't happened. And the mainstream neoliberal hacks have done everything they can possibly do to make as much hay out of that situation as possible. And you know, things aren't looking good. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to candy coat it, but we will see what happens today. This is my little preamble to today's episode. It's a current events show. So if you record an interview several days ago, it's likely to be completely out of touch and outdated by the time you release it. Fortunately, the vast majority of this interview is incredibly relevant and incredibly topical. And I think you're going to enjoy it very much. Thanks to all of the patrons of Dead Pundit Society for making this podcast possible. I absolutely cannot do this without the generosity of my patrons. So win, lose, or draw today on Tuesday, March 10th. Win, lose, or draw later down the road if the Bernie Sanders campaign should continue. We are absolutely going to need to continue building this Democratic left principled progressive coalition because we have seen a number of 
let's say stuffed shirt progressives, you know, bow out when we needed them the most. They were not there for us. They did not have the right analysis. They gave in to illusions about Elizabeth Warren and their supporters. They believed that progressives who worshipped technocratic solutions rather than grassroots, working-class-oriented solutions would be our savior. And we absolutely need to continue this project that DPS is an instrumental part of, which is building a democratic socialist consensus among these newly activated and newly inspired socialists that have been out there knocking on doors, texting, and, and phone banking for Bernie Sanders over the past year. We have a lot of work to do, win, lose, or draw, and we cannot do this without you. So I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter of this mission today. Uh, I don't like to get too sappy or be too salesy or too pushy about this Patreon pitch each week, but we absolutely need to build this thing going forward. There's going to be a lot of time for reflection, whatever happens today. Uh, there's going to be a lot of time for celebrating, a lot of time for uh, anger and frustration. There's going to be a lot of time for hot takes and, and more cold and processed takes. But whatever happens, we absolutely need to continue building this new left media ecosystem in a way that can face down the challenges that are in front of us today. Look no further than this emerging coronavirus pandemic. The Trump administration is caught pants down around its ankles. And that's not just the failure of Trump's tiny, tiny brain. That, th th those are reflective of the failures of our privatized healthcare system. And it is only through a principled, grassroots-oriented democratic socialist movement that we could ever overturn that private healthcare juggernaut with something like Medicare for All. We're going to need a large, large mass movement in order to change anything in this society, in order to move the needle one millimeter. That has been the lesson of this primary season. This go-along, get-along, progressive, technocratic appeal to having a plan for that will accomplish absolutely nothing. And only democratic socialism can save us. Not to be too histrionic about it, but it's absolutely true. So I hope that you will support this agenda and other creators and media presenters and providers out there like it with your dollars, with your, with your shares, with your support. And whatever happens, of course, expect to hear the best news and analysis and breakdown of those results here on Dead Pundit Society for this week's B-side and next week's A-side and beyond. We're not going anywhere. We are building something that is tangible and lasting. All right. Enough of a stump speech. Out of me. Enjoy the interview with Branko Marchetich. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And thanks, everybody, for your support, for enabling this political project to continue to expand and to grow. We've got a really great show for you. On the way, those of you who have been listening to DPS for quite some time will know my guest today on the show. He has been working on a book about Joe Biden for quite some time. And after Super Tuesday, Joe Biden is certainly once again, or at least he seems to be the man of the hour. On the back of his South Carolina primary victory and the undoubtedly negotiated exits of his centrist challengers, Amy Klobuchar and Mayo Pete, 
The Biden campaign coasted to victory last Super Tuesday on a warm current of uh, around about $200 million in free television coverage provided by the mainstream media. Thank you very much. In the wake of Joe Biden's seeming victory, the entire Democratic establishment has eagerly boarded the USS Biden, despite its obvious lack of seaworthiness in critical areas. While Super Tuesday left a lot of Sanders supporters understandably deflated, myself included, I can hardly think of a better matchup for Sanders than the guy who, for his entire career, has argued that his vision for America is one in which Main Street and Wall Street are not fundamentally in opposition. More recently still, as many of you will know by now, Biden is known to have assured a group of millionaire and billionaire stakeholders that nothing fundamentally would change if he were elected president. So forget the fact that once all the votes are counted, in California in particular, Sanders and Biden will be essentially tied in delegates. Or that exit polls show a majority of voters are in favor of Bernie's signature policies. The media is attempting a coronation for Biden after Super Tuesday. So how do we understand this man, Joe Biden? A guy whose political career has spanned the ages, from Hubert Humphrey to Jimmy Carter, from Bill Clinton to Barack Obama, and beyond into the Trump era. Joe Biden's career has additionally spanned from a political world where the radical change that he spurned at the beginning of his career is back on the agenda of the mainstream political scene. My guest today will talk quite extensively about how Biden cut his teeth in the early 70s in an era where the radical transformation of political economy, of the de-political economy, was certainly on the table. And we took a very, very different path, a neoliberal path, which has led us precisely to the hellscape in which we find ourselves today. So joining me, as I said at the outset this week to break down the life and times of Joe Biden and perhaps and hopefully offer some clues about the upcoming Biden versus Bernie battle royale is Branko Marchetich. His latest book, Hot Off the Presses, is titled Yesterday's Man, an awesome title, by the way, subtitled The Case Against Joe Biden. Branko, always a pleasure to have you back on DPS. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure to be on. So Super Tuesday. It was quite a windup I gave you beginning there. We're going <laughs> we're gonna, to we're gonna take it down a notch. We're going we're gonna to let down our collars from here on out. What happened? I, I obviously alluded to the fact in the opening there that uh, some media analysts have come out with some figures. They estimate that the mainstream media gifted the Biden campaign with approximately $200 million in free television coverage in the several days leading up to Super Tuesday in the wake of his South Carolina victory. Others have reminded us still that South Carolina, the South Carolina primary, stands as the most conservative primary in the entire schedule, and it stands in last place in terms of predicting the overall temperament of the Democratic Party voter base, whereas Nevada and some of the other caucuses and primaries that Bernie Sanders has won are in the top five in terms of predicting the American temperament. That in addition to the fact that, as you've said many times on our show in the past year, we're just sort of waiting for one of Biden's uh, gropey gropes or his eyeball bloody explosions to to end his career. There's a lot there's a lot to be hopeful here if you are in uh, on Team Sanders. What is your assessment of what exactly happened on Super Tuesday? I mean, it, everyone's sort of scrambling to draw really broad conclusions. Uh, you know, I, I've seen people on Twitter commentators already being like, oh, the problem was that the Sanders just went too far left. That was, he, just, he changed his campaign. He went too far left. He, he had too many issues. He did the Corbyn thing. I mean, I think it's hard to know what exactly is going on until we 
till we get moved past Super Tuesday. As you say, Super Tuesday is full of conservative states that are not necessarily actually bellwethers for which how, how the Democratic Party is feeling or even how the general election is going to go. Super Tuesday actually was instituted by the kind of conservative block of Democrats that Biden was a part of in the 80s because they wanted to, the idea was after Reagan's victory is that they wanted to prioritize the South, the conservative South in the Democratic Party and make give it a bigger voice. Um, it was also a way to stop Jesse Jackson who sort of was the the Bernie Sanders of his time, this insurgent candidate who was kind of trying to knit together this broad coalition of, of voters through through shared economic interests and, and other things. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, Super Tuesday, it's worked its magic again, even though they've it's, it's been balanced out a little bit with the inclusion of California this year. It's um, still overwhelmingly meant to sort of swing things in a more conservative direction. That was that was the origin of Super Tuesday. So this whole thing, you know, starting with South Carolina then this past or last Saturday mm. and up to Super Tuesday, this whole thing you could argue is telegraphed by the Democratic Party mainstream since the 1980s in order to make the voice of the most conservative Democrats in the country heard early on to stave off the insurgent campaigns of, of someone like a Sanders. Of course, they were in that moment in the 80s trying to recover from their interpretation of what happened with Hubert Humphreys and, and, and others. Of course, McGovern being the big uh, boogeyman of that era as well. So this whole thing, you could argue, has been telegraphed then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the South Carolina thing, all, all of this, I think, points to one thing that we can we can say definitively, which is that the power of the media and the power of uh, the Democratic elite um, and the influence they have over the Democratic electorate is, it, it still matters. You know, I think because this Democratic primary mirrored the Republican one so much, um, there was this feeling, and I had the same feeling, that that it was kind of going to go the same way that it went went for Trump. But the thing is, the Democratic and the Republican electorates are very different. The Republican electorate does not trust the media, which, by the way, they're completely right to, to not trust the media. Uh, the Democratic electorate is, is way too credulous about, about, you know, trusting these kinds of establishment media voices. And the Republican electorate also rejected it's it's elites and what they were saying. They they kind of follow their heart. A Democratic elite does not have that. They, I think, they're a lot more fearful. The Democratic electorate is is always you know perpetually on the back foot. They're always just one moment away from the next um, next defeat, which is which is part of the problem. Which is why the Democrats never do anything. I mean, uh, you know, Derek Davidson did this uh, thread today that's that's very true about how. No matter what happens, the Democratic Party will always say that you can't you can't do anything because there's always the next election to worry about. You either have to win the presidential election, or then you have to hold on to the uh, Senate and House in the midterms, and then after that you have to win re-election and so on and so forth. And so you can never be bold. You can never do anything. But yeah, I think we saw. You know, why did Biden win South Carolina? I think half of the people in an exit poll said that. Jim Clyburn's last-minute endorsement was key to changing their minds. And, you know, Biden was already going to win South Carolina. The question was how big. Once that win happened, the establishment of the party did a very smart thing. They all came together. They endorsed Biden. Um, you know, there was a question of were these voters from Buttigieg and Klobuchar actually going to go to Biden? I mean, there's a significant amount of them that, that were Sanders people. I know a lot of, uh, I think, Buttigieg supporters, uh, second second top choice was, was Sanders, but it did work. I think because because Biden got this aura of electability back, you know, people people in politics have the, 
the memories of goldfish. You know, if it, if it happened a week ago, then it doesn't matter. And so Biden had this this momentum going into Super Tuesday. If you know, if Elizabeth Warren had done a similar thing to Burgess and Klobuchar and looked at her chances realistically and, and said, what's more important, the movement or, you know, me winning a few delegates, she could have done a similar thing and maybe halted some of that momentum, given Sanders some of that free media. But she didn't. She chose to stay in the race. And, and I think that ultimately hurt Sanders. But at the same time, you know, we, we also have to be I think sometimes people confuse pessimism for realism. That was a very disappointing night. It was it was not good for Sanders. He he lost Texas. He lost the, the states in the north. They shouldn't have lost. But he did win big in California. And at the moment, the delegate count is not even. Biden's slightly ahead. But he's slightly ahead by maybe, what, 50, 50 or so delegates. And it's not – what remains to be seen is this momentum that, that Biden got. And, and, you know, let's be clear – Biden was a corpse that was dragged to victory by the establishment. He did not visit these states. He didn't have offices at these states. He didn't do anything uh, in any of these states that he won. Um, the New York Times sort of sounded the alarm last week saying, you know, what the, the title of the, the piece was, he hasn't been here, in quotation marks, which is a direct quote from uh, <laughs> someone in, I believe, California talking, the he there, of course, being Biden. And yet, you know, I, I predicted that this would this would have a, a negative impact for for Biden at the time. Of course, that was prior to his South Carolina victory, which was used as the impulse, the imperative for this two hundred million dollars in free television coverage. Well, it wasn't right? just California. He didn't he didn't go to Arkansas. Yeah, he didn't nowhere. he didn't go to a bunch of these southern states that he won. That was entirely you know he got this wave of endorsements. And he had that again that momentum, and that really carried him. You know, on the other hand, I think we have to to look at. The fact that the, the Sanders model of organizing was really crucial here, the, the Sanders model of, of this kind of grassroots effort, get out the vote, get people who normally aren't targeted and normally don't vote to come out. If he hadn't done that, if he hadn't done that Latino outreach program that the campaign has really become famous for now, it, it may have been a complete massacre across the board. Um, and the fact that it wasn't is a testament to that campaign's organizing. I think also we have to remember uh, voter voter suppression. You know, it doesn't matter if that was the the fault of the Republicans in Texas, but ultimately, the voter suppression hurts a left insurgent in a Democratic primary, and it hurts any remotely left of center candidate in the general. And I mean, in Texas, you know, you had these reports of people waiting five, sometimes seven hours to vote. Reports of uh, two voting machines per you know, 24 people or 14 people, voting machines being flown in to replace the ones that are broken and then those not working either. So, and then moving ahead beyond that, I think the, the big question is, okay, can Sanders regain any momentum? I think, I think honestly, the key thing here is going to be what Warren decides to do. And I, I cannot believe that we have to wonder about this, but, you know, is she going to get behind him? Because if she does, she cuts into that that media that Biden's getting. Um, it gives Sanders some momentum. It, it may push some of her supporters towards Sanders, and it, and it tells people, "Hey, this race isn't over," because that's the message a lot of people are getting. And then the other question is, this momentum that Biden got, this push from the uh, party establishment that he got into Super Tuesday, is that something that's going to be able to carry on, or was that something that was temporary, something that only worked when the one, because it came, you know, literally the day before Super Tuesday, but also because it was a day of mostly conservative states, southern states 
voting is that going to carry on and translate into the next set of contexts? And I have no idea, but but I think those are the questions that we're probably looking at going on. I wanted to point to one thing before moving on here. I don't want to uh, you know belabor this point too much, but it's worth talking about and kind of maybe signposting for future episodes or future conversations or future <clears throat> articles in Jacobin, perhaps. But uh, you know, friend of the show and a recent guest, Eric Levitz, good solid progressive. Um, I once called him a wishy-washy progressive. I was corrected. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly who on my show did this. I'm sure a listener could remind me. But they said, no, no, I think I think Levitz might be a wishy-washy democratic socialist. And that might be true. I'll have to ask Eric next time we chat. But he's wishy-washy nonetheless, by my estimation. The thesis of his, of his, his most recent piece for New York Magazine was that the Sanders strategy was a bold one. It was, uh, in, in many instances, the right one. But it just didn't work. Which is that, you know, trying to mobilize these new voters. And he and then he goes on talking about this kind of um what's the what's the opposite of a boogeyman? Something like a, an invisible sort of like a, an impulse that people cling to in order to to reassure them, right? There yeah. uh this this um this idea that there are, are these um these unheard from masses, right? This population mm. out there that if we could just reach them, they will carry us to victory, right? And he right. talks about how this has played out in a lot of different political movements from across the spectrum over time. And, and it's one of those things that he crafts this narrative in a, in a really interesting sort of way. The problem is that I'm not sure that the premise is true to begin with, right? So if you buy the premise, it's a really interesting narrative, but I don't buy the premise. The premise being that the Sanders strategy ultimately failed. Uh, and it, whereas mm. and you point out, I think rightly, rightfully so, I mean, if it weren't for that strategy, uh, I'm not sure that Sanders would still be in the race, no, no. I mean, you know, you know I mean, it, it's, it wasn't enough to carry Arkansas and Alabama and South Carolina, but it was certainly enough to to deliver him Nevada and 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 make it close in Texas and have that uh, overwhelming uh, you know outpouring of support in California. So I don't know how people can say that is all I'm getting at. No, totally. I mean, well, uh, people are kind of looking at, at Democratic primary turnout and they're saying, well, you know, Sanders' theory isn't working out. And yeah, to be fair, you know, young young uh, person turnout is is down from 2016, but again. It's it's hard to know with a Democratic primary. I mean, it's not really necessarily that predictive of what happens after after this because something like seventy four percent of Democratic primary voters, I think, are, are, are um, uh, satisfied with all the candidates. You know, for a lot of Democratic voters, they they see these candidates. Yeah, maybe they have a few differences, but ultimately they're all you know progressives and and they'll do the right thing uh, when they're in office. They they don't. They don't like us. One, they don't. They don't necessarily follow politics super closely as as people like us do, but also they don't um, maybe place as much of a premium on some of these differences that we do. Uh, you know, we we look at Pete Buttigieg, you know, the way he changes his messaging, the way he he turned on um, on on Medicare for all, and we you know we say, well, this is very indicative of the kind of person he is, the kind of politician he is. For other people, they they don't have this kind of more cynical view. They sort of see it as well, you know. That no, that he just he just honestly thinks this is the best plan. You know, it's, it has nothing to do with the fact that he's started getting funding from pharmaceutical companies and health insurers, and he's he's racking up money from Wall Street. That's nothing to do with it. It's 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 he just everyone in this stage genuinely believes in 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 what they're doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's also worth noting that that among South Carolina voters, there was a CNN exit poll. And a majority of Biden, a slim majority, but a majority nonetheless of Biden voters said that they wanted a, quote, complete overhaul of the U.S. economic system. A bunch of them voted for Biden because they thought healthcare care and, and, and climate were the biggest issues for them. 
what this tells me is that people aren't necessarily voting for Biden because they are into or even maybe aware of his platform and his history and, and where he's getting his funding. I think people are people are scared in a Democratic electorate. The Trump thing has scrambled things. People just want Trump out. And they have been told relentlessly over and over again, not just on MSNBC, but pretty much every mainstream pub, news publication that Joe Biden is the electable candidate, that he's a safe choice. And, you know, people could think back to 2016 and why Hillary Clinton lost. But then again, what have they been told for, for four years now was the reason Clinton lost? It wasn't because of her crappy positions and her terrible history. It wasn't because of the, the just hapless campaign uh, she ran. It was because of Russia and Facebook and trolls and, and bots and blah, 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 blah. I'll just say just very quickly, just had some news come in. Elizabeth Warren has dropped out, which is you know not surprising. She hasn't come second in the, even second in a single race. Uh, but she is not endorsing anyone, which is disappointing to say the least, not just for people who believe in, in the wider progressive movement, but people who believe that Warren would sort of put her ambitions to the side. We all know she wants a post and whatever administration comes next. But put those ambitions aside and, do, and pull an AOC, you know, take a, take a punt. That's a that's a Kiwi expression. I know it probably doesn't translate to the U.S. But, you know, take a risk. A, and, it could um, be a football term as well, yeah. No right, Ameri- yeah. American football. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so t- well, that's so – we, so, yeah, so we've got some breaking news then on the show. Yeah. I don't get to do this very often. Unfortunately, this is not going to air until next week. And so by the time this comes out, all of the hot takes will have uh, been – baked up and cooked and then probably been, uh, you know, eaten as leftovers three, three separate times. So, you know, we don't have to get into this too, too much, but at the same time, it's, it is interesting that it, you know, that, you know, contrast this to what we saw following South Carolina, you know, the, the, you know, Klobuchar and Buddha judges coordinated exits followed by immediate mm-hmm. endorsements. And then, and then we've got Warren, you know, who knows? I don't know. Maybe by the time the show airs, Warren will have announced. Maybe Sanders. she will have endorsed, I, which I hope I, she does. I, I hope she does. I doubt it, but maybe she will. I, I just, you know, we're, we're making wagers. We're writing checks. Maybe our ass can't cash this time next week. But, you know, I think that um, it, it's telling, isn't it? That there wasn't an immediate endorsement, you know. I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. This is kind of um, flooring me. I, I knew there was a good chance that I would wake up this morning. It is Thursday, Thursday, March 5th. I knew there was a good chance I'd wake up to that news today, depending on how mm-hmm. early I woke up. But it finally broke, and here we are. But no endorsement. So that is, uh, in fact, the timing not only for the show in terms of our conversation couldn't be better because we were contrasting this with Buddha Judge and Klobuchar booing Biden. And what it might take to get Sanders back afloat. So uh, I've got these nautical metaphors going today, Branko. What's up with that? <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's news. Let's thread that through. We'll we'll kind of track that story as we record well, this look, thing. I, I don't know how many of your listeners that warm people. I expect probably zero, <laughs> if not, you know, maybe maybe a handful. I mean, I would say I, like, thank you, know, you, sir. May I have another? Maybe some like real like BDSM style fans who are like you <laughs> yes. know into Warren and watch the show. Yeah. Listen to the show. Look, I mean, I I have nothing but respect for her supporters. I think, you know, all, uh, all of them, or at least most of them, were uh, the vast, vast majority were, were good faith people who, who honestly believed that she was the best candidate and were supporting her because they had faith in her vision. And I would, I would say to them, I would plead with them to get on board 
even if she does not endorse Sanders, and we'll see, maybe she will, maybe she will announce something. But the fact that it hasn't, you know, the, the Buttigieg and Kobachar exit was a package deal. They they left and immediately endorsed. It doesn't seem like it's happening this time with Wong. But even even if she doesn't, I would urge them to look at the realities. Joe Biden is not only the enemy of everything that Warren stands for, she literally got into politics because of him and his, and his awful bankruptcy bill. But even beyond that, look at the realities of the world. Climate change, uh, that is a ticking clock. There is not a hell of a lot of time to change things uh, in, in terms of that, to reverse the you know slide into oblivion that we're on. There is only one candidate now in the race who takes that threat seriously, who doesn't take money from the very industries that are going to block uh, any any attempt to deal with this. And that's Bernie Sanders. And, you know, whatever differences Warren and Sanders had during the campaign, I'm not going to really litigate that. I will just say that the the idea that Sanders, uh, the Sanders campaign was in any way terrible to Warren is completely overblown and ridiculous. And it is entirely based on the random tweets of people who support Sanders on Twitter and not, you know, anything outside of that. But whatever the differences were in the, during the campaign, uh, Sanders is the only one that lines up with the vision she has in the world. And even, even whatever way she decides to go, follow the what is best for the wider goals that Warren was advocating, not necessarily what she ends up doing. That That's all I'll say. Yeah. Measured, measured uh, analysis, response. Um, mine's a little more angry. But, but again. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, trying to, well, I'm trying to be magnanimous. You're doing but. the right thing. As I, as, look, man, as, I, as I've probably said to you this – I've said this to you multiple times. i said to many people, whether they're academics or journalists. Like you guys have this thing called integrity to worry about. I'm just a fucking layabout podcaster. I can say <laughs> what I want. You know what I mean? Very low stakes over here on my end of the career ladder. Uh, you know, I don't blame you for trying to be measured. And look, and at the same time, as much as I make these Distinctions between progressives and democratic socialists like in this moment, damn it, if you are a Warren supporter, come on side, you know, and that was more or less what you were trying to say. I think like you could basically take your appeal that you just made almost directly to, to Warren and, and make that appeal to, to her supporters much more powerfully. We've seen supporters of Pete Buttigieg come on side with Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. you know, people's ideologies are just not as like coherent as we – like political junkies oftentimes like to imagine. In fact, every study after study reveals that you know people's ideologies are, are almost entirely incoherent. <laughs> they make no oh, fucking sure. sense. Well, but you know, I mean, this uh, is the thing is that even on an electability case, Biden fails. I mean, not just in the fact that he yeah. he literally has every single weakness uh, that Clinton had that sunk a candidacy, but. And I know that nobody wants to talk about this in the in the mainstream press. This is this is taboo for some reason. Even though we know that if Bernie Sanders was uh, uh, mistaking who his wife was, couldn't remember Barack Obama's oh name, couldn't remember the yeah. the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, there would be nonstop media coverage. There would be demands for him to do uh, uh, cognitive testing and everything. Mm. And but but for Joe Biden, it's not you're allowed to say it. But let's be honest. Put Joe Biden up against Donald Trump. I mean, Fox is already going on this. There have been uh, you know, a number of segments that, that I've, I've seen uh, shared online from Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram and stuff. Put Biden either on a debate stage or just you know, video to video with Trump. And he makes Trump look lucid and coherent yeah. and confident 
and frankly, like an eloquent sort of uh, <laughs> Roman uh, Empire-like spe- speaker. I mean, that alone is yeah. going to be, I think, sink him against Trump. And that's before you get into all the Iraq war stuff, the trade stuff, the criminal the justice investigation. Stuff. You know, the GOP <laughs> is ramping up this investigation into Biden and his son. Good Lord. After this Super Tuesday win, it's going to become even much more of a liability at this point. Uh, that you know, the, and, and let's think about this too, right? The 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 House Dems have basically given you know, <laughs> given carte blanche to the to the GOP to do this, right? Because they, I mean, how many investigations have we seen coming from the from the House the Dems that were spurious or just ridiculous or far fetched? You know, they're in no position to try to block a similar kind of you know GOP investigation. You yeah. know, so Biden should be nervous about that right now. And, and, and by the uh, way, I will say about that that investigation i i don't know why why biden had the guy fired it's it's not totally clear but the idea that like what's sort of been reported everywhere is that this is a, this is a clear-cut case it's completely a conspiracy theory it's a hoax and and that's all there is to it and that may not be true there was a, the russian independent newspaper Novaya gazeta said that the investigation of burisma was ongoing when shokin was fired by Biden or Biden pressure him to, to be fired. Um, mm-hmm. There's also other things that just don't really make a lot of sense, like Zlochevsky, the, the oligarch who was the, whose company it was, Burisma, he and his allies were very pleased when uh, Shokin was fired and Lusenko was brought in instead. So, I mean, if this guy was sort of gotten rid of because he was so terrible and corrupt, it's, it's weird that, you know, this oligarch is then pleased that he's being replaced. Again, I'm not saying that Biden did this to protect the sun, but even if he didn't do it and he did fire him while an investigation was was ongoing and there's all the you know and, and it may have actually benefited this guy who clearly was engaged in an influence peddling uh, yeah, sort of yeah. uh, operation by, by putting uh, Biden's son on the board that's going to look terrible for Biden and in fact it vindicates Trump it, it totally vindicates it, Trump it, 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 it yeah the, the House Democrats have spent the last year building this case at least a year if not more completely you know they've, they've bet all their chips on this strategy right. for for 2020 yeah uh, you know taking you know winning the Senate keeping their house you know advantage and then trying to take the, the presidency and in Biden a Biden nomination completely renders null and void that entire strategy. And as we've seen, due to Pelosi's sidelining of the progressive wing of her party, you know, they have no other tools in their disposal right now. So that they're 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 just caught pants down and in, in, in Trump. We're gonna have to put up with Trump on the you know debate stage talking about, you know, sleepy Joe Biden and corrupt Joe Biden and all the rest of it. And uh yeah. We've got nothing to say to it. Well, so you know, let's if Biden, I mean, the idea that this whole Burisma thing is just going to, you know, the impeachment is done and that's it. The idea that, that more facts about us are not going to come out is is ludicrous. Uh, there will definitely be, you know, Wall Street Journal and I'm sure a bunch of other news outlets will be looking into this more closely. There is every possibility that, that, that facts that we have not heard so far, the facts that may well counter what we've heard from the media this entire time, because the media has sort of been protecting Biden and really going hard after Trump. That, that could counter that narrative. And if it does, that looks very bad. I mean, what the the fundamental point of impeachment by the Democrats was that Trump, by leveraging foreign aid to get the new Ukrainian president to uh, investigate Biden for corruption, that was that's a crime that's worthy of impeachment, right? Well, yeah. but if if it turns out that there is something shady or even something that looks shady about the firing of Shokin by Biden. 
Well, that that completely negates that because what Biden also leveraged aid to Ukraine to have them fire a guy uh, or to have them at least change something in their policy uh, to do with rooting out corruption. So Trump would just say, well, I did the exact same thing that Biden did, but the Democrats yeah. went after me basically just to, to destroy me. And that would be that would be a nightmare. And I mean, you know, combined with the cognitive issues and, and every other thing that we've talked about about Biden's policy, I mean, that, that's the end of his campaign. And we, yeah. we get four more years of Trump. I'll just say, breaking news, BuzzFeed has put out a report, and I'll just read a, a one paragraph from it. Says uh, this is a report about Warren uh, dropping out. Says among close Warren allies, there has been disagreement in recent days about whether she should endorse Sanders, with whom she is closely aligned ideologically, or try to extract policy commitments or a possible cabinet position from Biden, who for now looks most likely to capture the nomination. Biden and Warren spoke on Wednesday night. A Biden campaign official said, um, "Without without." you know, making any judgments here about, about Warren's motivations. I will just say that this is a foolish and defeatist move. That is that she will not get what she wants. If she goes with Biden, I thought that it's totally on par with the way that she has uh, imagined politics to operate though, throughout her her entire career though, isn't it? Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, it's all too predictable based on the way that she imagines this game to to function, right? This game to work, and it's so wrongheaded in, in the reason why her campaign floundered in the first place. Um, this, yeah, let's you know, I, I, we could spend the rest of this hour talking about Warren, and I, Lord knows, I want to, but unfortunately, like I said, <laughs> by the time this comes out, the the game might have completely changed. She may have had a come to Jesus moment or a come to Bernie moment, if you will. Um, I doubt it. I'm putting that on the record, but, but we'll see. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's move on because I, I, I think that what you're pointing to in terms of like the current events of, uh, aspect really, really uh, relates to, to your book pretty well here. And this is what's so important about Biden is because here's a man throughout his entire career. He's been, he's been followed or preceded by a cloud of smoke, but he and all of his backers have tried to convince us that there's actually no fire. Mm. When it comes to corruption and influence peddling, because you point out in multiple places in your book that Biden was involved in a number of questionable, scandalous activities with respect to his family, his brother, his staffers or whomever. This is a guy who throughout his entire career has never balked at the, <laughs> the notion of picking up the phone and calling the right guy who can get the job done for for some one around him or some, you know, and this, this old style of influence pedal peddling politics that most of us at this point in time view as quite corrupt, quite corrupt. Mm. And so let's, let's talk about this book before we get to that influence peddling that was present from the beginning of his political career in the 1970s. Talk to us a little bit about your journey in writing this book. Um, you and I have talked a lot about this in private. I can't remember if any of it made it on the air in your, in your several <laughs> episodes on DPS. But like, what was it like over the past year writing a book about Biden, whose fortunes like seem to ebb and flow on a weekly basis? Uh, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster. I started writing this book. I, I think I got the the idea to write it around April. Uh, I was really given the idea by by a friend, and you know there was a there was a discussion with with. A publisher about doing it, then then Biden 
uh, into the race, and immediately the uh, the groping scandal, you know, his deeply weird uh, touching of girls and women, that broke, and um, people got spooked, and they figured, you know, this person's just going to he's just going to burn out at some point, and and but you know, Baskar believed in it. He thought it was an important book to put out. You know, this guy very, very well could end up being the Democratic nominee, and people should know about his record. So we plowed on ahead, and the entire time as I'm writing this, I, you know, I'm watching Biden's campaign, I'm watching the, the quote-unquote gaffes, the so-called gaffes, which at this point really are, are not gaffes, they're serious symptoms of, uh, or some, symptoms of something much more serious. And I'm watching him just step into cow shit just day after day constantly. And I'm like, this guy, it's, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to accuse him of assault or harassment or something, or he's going to, like, his just jaw will, will like, detach and fall to the floor uh, while he's in a debate or something and just his campaign will be over. And I'll, I'll have spent this entire time writing this for nothing. Miraculously, Biden managed to survive until I finished the book. And I finished the book about December sometime. Uh, you coordinated this thing, didn't you? November. You coordinated the rise of Biden. You're the yeah. man behind the curtain. <laughs> it was me. It was me. It was you. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm actually if – you, if you pull Joe Biden's uh, – <laughs> leathery face off it's it's actually just me underneath this entire time um uh, i'm actually sneaky plucky. <laughs> i'm actually in michigan right and he would have he would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those plucky kids or whatever the fuck, <laughs> if right? it wasn't yeah. for that meddling 78 year old meddling dps host oh well yeah yeah sanders too i was gonna take credit for it. i'm actually behind sanders mask uh, <laughs> okay. uh, well, whole... i didn't realize that this entire time we've just been uh we've been competing. this is awkward I mean, you well, could say it was true. fate that that you and I would meet in this uh, on on this field of battle. Yeah, appropriate. Uh, the the, the, the primary is sort out on on the podcast medium. Uh, right, so was, like, I'm 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 making the reviewers who who review the show saying I really love DPS, but Adam derails conversations sometimes. I'm really making I'm really like no, putting no, paid to that criticism right now. Let's get this back on board. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so I put the book. Uh, and then, you know, then it's just the three months of like, well, um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I think I've, I've done the research into his life and I came to the conclusion that Biden would be a pretty horrendous candidate. And so on the one hand, I'm going, I, you know, I don't want this guy to do well. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, then at the same time, you know, I've spent all this time writing the book. There's a lot of money being invested in the book by a number of different people. And then, <laughs> Burisma. You know, Burisma, yeah, that's right. <laughs> But uh, you know, you're thinking, oh God, well, I, you know, now I'm going to be, I'm going to be responsible for all this, all this um, just being wasted. And then, of course, just as the book is about to come out, and the book came out in the, in the end of February, just uh, just before South Carolina, uh, Biden collapses electorally. And uh, you know, so the, the book is sort of, I, I wrote the book, so it's not just about Biden. You know, Biden is sort of this stand-in for the wider Democratic establishment, which I, which is true. I mean, you know, a lot of the choices and a lot of decisions he made wasn't him alone. He was very much symbolic or emblematic of, of what the wider Democrats of his generation and beyond have decided to do and, and how they decide to look at politics. Um, so there is, you know, there's a shelf life beyond it, but still him, him collapsing isn't great. And you know, I'm not totally bothered by it, but so I go on this book tour um, and it's fine. Uh, the book launch happens in New York and, uh, you know, all I'll say is it was, it, it was very underwhelming because this is the day before South Carolina Everyone was sure that Biden was finished, and so there was no point yep. anymore yep. In, in paying attention to this guy. We um, proclaimed a, a Sanders versus Bloomberg race that would look to be exactly, you know, lined exactly. up. 
And so even though, you know, I, the book tour as a whole went well, uh, you know, I got to, to speak to, to good crowds and, and had some really good interactions with people. The actual launch uh, was, was very underwhelming. And then literally the day after this, South Carolina happens. And, and then you just get, well, the, the last week of all of our lives where the, the narrative in completely shifts. It's completely turned on its head. 180 degrees, and suddenly Biden is unbeatable and unstoppable, and he's a front runner and everything. And then suddenly, suddenly the book is going bang- gangbusters again. So it has been this just constant emotional roller coaster. And by the way, I mean I'm happy that the book is doing well, but like at what price? You know, I'm not I'm not particularly pleased that that uh, the Democratic electorate is thinking, yes, let's let's um, uh, nominate this guy who has worked against our interests and and had his hand and basically destroying the legacy, the proudest legacies of the Democratic Party uh, over the past 40 years. I mean, that doesn't really fill me with pleasure. Um, so it's just, it's it's a lot of strange emotions and, and conflicts happening right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I, I've mentioned to you off air, and I believe we've talked about this previously when, you know, talking about you writing this book. And my concern is that, you know, you talk about this low turnout in New York. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the lead up to South Carolina being, we're, we're all oblivious to this Biden, you know, p- uh, potential, myself included. You know, I thought despite the fact that Bloomberg shit the bed on live national television, I thought <laughs> that it would still somehow shake because of his money. I mean, my God, the man has more money than God that he would be able to buy this thing and it would be a Bloomberg Sanders race. But yeah, who knows? But uh, one of the other reasons the disinterest perhaps, perhaps in this book is the fact that we just, who needs to read a book on Biden? Well, I already know this stuff. All right, Biden's a bad guy. He's a neoliberal. Like, ah, whatever. He's a sellout. Chill. You know, uh, maybe they know a little bit about his bankruptcy bill stuff. Maybe they know a little bit about the busing legacy. Maybe they know a little bit about, you know, all the rest of it. But I got to say, I mean, I, I took a lot away from this book. And I'd encourage the listeners to, to, to pick it up, to buy it, to read it, uh, because it really does. It, it really, it, I mean, let's, so, you know, in, in a sense, then. There's two mapping mappings on that are happening here. The first one is that your journey writing this book maps on with the uh, trials and tribulations of the Biden campaign thus far over the past year. The other thing is that Biden's career maps on to the uh, progression, regression, if you will, of the Democratic Party in the past 35 years, 40 years. You know, um, and and I, I took a lot of that away. Uh, took a lot away from from this book in, in that respect. I mean, let's trace this this history of his then, right? Because we're starting in the early 1970s, and this is a really pivotal moment in the Democratic Party and the American political scene that delivered unto us uh, began to deliver unto us a very different political and institutional coalition that we are still reaping. Right? This was the moment when. The, the the party and economic and political elites were extracting themselves from the compromises that they had previously made in the, the New Deal era, right, in the post-war era. And they mm. were beginning to extricate themselves from the grasp of organized labor, from the, the grasp of the social movements, right, which had tried to transform the party in 1968. And Biden really played a central role in steering this party away from, you know, away from Humphrey uh, towards Carter, right? Away from the other progressives and the old labor Democrats towards Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. Away from uh, the progressive, you know, sector and, and towards Obama. 
And now away from this political revolution of Bernie Sanders and back towards this kind of, you know, triangulationist bygone era uh, from where he came. So let's map this out. What, what, how did Biden start his political career? He was very, very young and he, he, he had a, an unlikely beginning in the political world. Biden, first of all, has to, has to be understood that, that he, like many candidates, was someone who wanted to be president or, or Santa or, or someone important in politics from a very early age. Uh, he, he, in fact, went into uh, a law law school because he, he thought it was the, the easiest path towards a political career. Um, he told his in-laws or his future in-laws at the time um, that he wanted to be president. Uh, so this is, a, this is a thing he has eye on. And this is, you know, you can you can copy and paste this onto people like Buttigieg and, and Obama and, and a whole host of candidates who have people who plan their political sense for an early age. And so when your entire life and career is about reaching a particular step in the ladder of hierarchy and, and you organize your entire life around that, everything is a compromise to get to that point. That That's all you're doing is you, you don't, you don't have a wider agenda that you're, you're trying to, um, move to you just have your own ascent up the ladder, and you know, you would contrast this with someone like uh, like Sanders or, or even Warren, because these are people who I don't think really ever planned to be president. Uh, they didn't think that they would ever be president or have have a chance to become president, and they figured you know they they were they're going to fight for wider principles and goals, but. You know that that's their ultimate goal, and even now, I mean, that, that is, you know, Sanders isn't isn't in this just so he can be be president. Check that off his bucket list, which I think is is basically the case with Biden. He's really trying to get wider goals achieved. Um, so, you know, Biden did not have any clear ideology. There's, there's a state party chairman who said that later. You know, he he was he was very assertive and, and impressive and everything, but he didn't really have any ideology. He's not a Democrat until he's about 27. He runs for the uh, Newcastle County Council in Delaware, uh, wins the Republican area. He's there for a year. They're going to redistrict him out. He sort of he, he wins as a kind of um, uh, public housing advocate. That's what he's known for. And he gets kind of racist abuse for this because obviously, you know, public housing, especially in Delaware, uh, you're mostly going to be dealing with poor African-Americans. And Biden, at the same time, he has his reputation as a as a you know, public housing advocate, quote unquote. He's also uh, he he tells reporters, well, you know, I'm not going to be a crusader rabbit who who goes out and fights for people's rights. I don't want people to think that, you know, <laughs> God forbid um, anyone should anyone yeah. should believe that he would fight for anyone's rights. He straddles a very diff- a very interesting line throughout his entire political career, right? I mean, he, mm-hmm. and the, you document this from the, his very earliest of days. On the one hand, he has some positions, you know, that are that are laudable, but then he turns right around and suggests, you know, I'm not as liberal as people say I am. You know, yeah. it's like, wait, what? what? What did you just do there? Right? Like that that bait and switch is something that is now a signature Biden movie. Yeah, exactly. He, he hates the word liberal. He doesn't want to be called a liberal. He insists that he's actually more conservative than people realize, um, and people. Another Democrat say that. I mean, so uh, 1972, um, Biden runs for 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 Senate, right? And he runs against this guy called J. Kale Boggs, Kale Boggs, who is this beloved, long-serving politician um, in in uh, Delaware. He was he was governor, then congressman, then now senator. And Biden runs against him basically just because he was going to lose his house seat and no one else wanted to because Boggs had just been in for yonks and yonks. And uh, Biden figures I'll give him a shot. He knows he's going to lose. 
And actually, people say at the time, you know, that actually Boggs is probably more liberal than Biden. Um, Boggs actually has a pretty good civil rights record um, and uh, gets gets the endorsement of the first black senator in U.S. history who was serving at the time. Yeah. And the local NAACP chapter, and, if I and, recall. Yep, that's right. Mentioned, which is like remarkable. The Republican would get the nod over the Democrat, but that, those were the times we were in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, we, there was a time when you had liberal, liberal Republicans um, and, and – yeah. Conservative Democrats, so the, the, those are just now the Democrats. But um, in any case, Biden uh, runs. Uh, so fucking depressing. Yeah. Um, Biden, Biden actually, uh, at one point, he sort of does this campaign where he um, tries to point out that, that Boggs is old um, and to try and knock him off that way. And he runs a series of ads that sort of trying to show the contrast in age. And, and one of these ads is sort of this potentially cleverly dog whistly one where he says something like um for for kale for kale boggs the biggest issue was the uh the 1947 poll tax for joe biden it's the it's the income tax or something along those lines which is kind of weird and i feel like it may be an example of him trying to very subtly and very cleverly dog whistle to to some republican voters because that is partly who he's targeting with this campaign at the same time as he's doing this this campaign that he runs is remarkable for what joe biden would become and be associated with because we know joe biden as the as the candidate of of big money of wealthy donors of big business we know joe biden as a candidate who has most of his support from old people uh we know joe biden as this conservative who is even though he's you know running on this liberal platform that he will almost certainly abandon uh, as soon as he can. Um, for now, uh, he's running on this liberal platform. He is also to the right of people like Sanders and Warren and, and very much arguing against their plans um, on conservative grounds. And yet, uh, and also, as you said, you know, going around telling wealthy people, nothing's going to change. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to stay the same if I'm prison. Right. And yet in 1972, he runs a campaign where he sounds remarkably like Bernie Sanders, where he's talking about how the parties are controlled by big money. He's hitting millionaires uh, who don't pay any taxes, billion-dollar corporations who are avoiding taxes. He wants Social Security payments increased. He wants controls on prices and, and uh, interest rates. He wants a consumer protection agency, all these things. Um, he gets big union support as a result of this. As, and, and, you know, he has this, these crowds of adoring young people who really like him, who are enthusiastic about him, because at the time, we have to remember, he was 29 years old. And despite his, all the difficulties he's having now, Biden, for pretty much his entire career up until this point, was a very charming, eloquent, well-spoken politician. He, he you know, really – he was, a, he was a, re- a really good speaker. He, you know, sort of almost Obama-esque, even if he, he – like to speak a little too much um you know that that's always been true but but still and so he runs this kind of and also he's a he's a vietnam war opponent that's the other thing so he runs uh, a campaign that's kind of a little bit dog whistling towards um conservative suburbanites but at the same time is um it's it's very economically populist and he wins he wins by some thousands of votes he actually even wins among um or no he doesn't win among republicans but he loses by a, a small amount than, than other democrats in the state had and that's his first campaign. And, you know, by 1978, all of this is basically 
reversed. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into this. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to keep droning on. Um, but, but perhaps you have some other questions that you, you want to ask. No, please do. I mean, let's carry this through his career. And I want to talk about like kind of signpost this in terms of where the, the rifts stood and cause you know, the, this book, what I took away from it and you know, not that you have to read between the lines to get, get there, but it's not exactly the topic. I mean, the topic of the book isn't the transformations inside the democratic party and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the party mm-hmm. elites, but, but that's, that's the story that you're mapping mm-hmm. through the, the career of Joe Biden. And, and, you know, there are various moments here um, that I like to talk about on the show quite a lot, whether they're political, you know, economic moments, sort of inflection points or, uh, you know, uh, inflection points in the leadership and the tra- trajectory of, of where they would take things. Um, and, and Biden has really been on the wrong side mm. <laughs> each and every time. Right. And yet and, and yet in being on the side that he was on, uh, he was able to sort of rewrite the historical narrative to to tell a different kind of story that actually that was the left edge of what was possible. And, and it, in many places throughout this book, you know, you tell a different story that actually, you no know, something else was possible. And, mm-hmm. and the story that, that I think a lot of boomers really take away from this. And I think about people like in my family and others who enthusiastically vote for Joe Biden, imagine him to be this, this staunch liberal, even progressive guy throughout his entire career who has bravely manned the left side of the pot, the left edge of the possible, you know, mm. and, and, and yet he's had to make some, you know, pragmatic calculations along the way, quote, reaching across the aisle in a bipartisan manner to get things done, you know, and, and they can, they can explain away his, his weekly meetings with, you know, Strom Thurmond, you know, blatant racist and segregationist in that way, you know, and, oh, it's a shame. Yeah, sure. Strom wasn't a great guy, but like, you know, it's, it's a shame that we don't live in a world anymore where the, you know, top Republican and top, you know, Democratic senators can't uh, go and then tell some anecdote about Tip O'Neill or whatever the fuck, right? About the good old days yeah, of, yeah. You know, yeah. uh, of, of yuck it up Democratic you know, Republican senators. Let's talk about some of these rifts then, because you mentioned that, you know, Biden enthusiastically gets behind the, the Carter campaign. Yeah, the Carter campaign. As a, as, a, as a kind of an antidote or an alternative to the Humphrey wing of the party. Which, you know, nowadays Carter, of course, endorsed Sanders. So we don't like to imagine him as the more conservative option. But but he in a, in a very real way, he was a very conservative option in that in a pivotal moment of stagflation, which really led us to the neoliberal hellscape in a direct uh, lineage. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, Carter was uh, – people people have, have made this uh, point that Carter was probably the first neoliberal president. I mean, there is a case that, that Nixon was actually – the last New Deal president, um, not not necessarily because you know he was a, a great champion for some of the stuff, but because you know the that was just the political moment at the time, and and the Democratic Congress uh, passed a lot of things like the, the the EPA, for example, that Nixon signed into law. I mean, Nixon was a mass murderer. Don't get me wrong, but just because of the moment he was in, he ended up being in, in some ways the last New Deal president. And Carter ended up deregulating industries. He he hated government spending. He was socially conservative, not on civil rights, but you know on some of these quote unquote moral issues. And by 1978, well, I mean yeah, okay. So let's start with Carter. Actually, Biden Biden uh, goes for Carter because uh, Biden's whole idea then and and since is that. You know, Carter's a Southern governor, and so we should um, we should support him. We, that, that's where the party should be. Um, okay, so 1978, Biden's up for re-election. Same year as the Taxpayers' Revolt of 1978. 
this massive anti-tax feeling bu uh, bubbling up, uh, particularly among uh, white suburbanites the country over, you know, people who, who would have voted for, for Nixon and, and ended up voting for Reagan and Republicans after that. Uh, Proposition 13 passes in California, um, which is an anti-tax ballot measure that is still in place today that Californians are actually trying to, try to roll back some of. Um, and, and that Proposition 13 passing sets off a flurry of, of other similar anti-tax measures across the country. And, and there's a noted turn, you know, people say in 1978, the Wilmington, one of the Wilmington papers says, you know, that this could be the year of the conservative. Um, there's, it, there's a palpable, something is changing palpably. Cause we have to remember that the seventies where you have the stagflation, you have oil shocks, all this stuff, and also Vietnam, you also have, um, there was a genuine rise in crime and drugs in the 1960s that people were unhappy with. Um, and because all this stuff was, was heavily racialized in the, uh, you know, the, the United States, which is, which is a very racist country, unfortunately, um, there's this kind of turn against uh, the stuff that happened in the 1960s, the more kind of liberal uh, feeling of the 1960s. And Biden's response to this is to lurch sharply to the right. Um, and so he runs this campaign after, after running this economically populist campaign in 1972, he starts saying, well, I'm a fiscal conservative. I want a tax cut. I want to have a, have a ceiling on the federal bureaucracy. I want to uh, do all this stuff. I, I don't think the government should be involved in, in everything. Uh, you know, things like racism and, and education, that's been solved. The federal government should just stay out of that. It should just now be focused on fighting drugs and, and a few other things. Um, and he wins. Um, and I think that sort of sets a pattern for the rest of his career where he realizes, because at, at the same time as he did this, and, and this also encompassed his turn against busing as well, um, you know, this, this wider turn against you know, what was perceived by, by uh, conservatives as, a, as, a, as the overreach of the civil rights movement. Um, so he turns against busing as well. And, and yet, uh, in 78, he not only beats his Republican opponent, but he also uh, he wins by a pretty wide margin. Um, he gets a lot of donations from uh, wealthy businessmen, particularly ones from California, um, some, you know, the epicenter of Proposition 13, some of whom specifically did, uh, did support Proposition 13. Um, and, and he had previously sworn that he wouldn't take money from donors because he, he said that, you, you know, there's always a quid pro quo involved. Um, and, but he wins, he not only wins, uh, against that Republican, but he, he maintains the support, the strong support of African-American voters in the state. He retains the strong support of unions, despite getting money, um, from, uh, big business. Um, and he retains the support of liberal voters in Delaware who basically say, well, you know, yeah, he's, he's against busing and stuff, but what are you going to do? I mean, it's Delaware. You know, this is, this is basically everyone's like this. Then you have the 1980s. So two years after this, you have the re-election, uh, sorry, the, the election of Ronald Reagan over Jimmy Carter, uh, landslide election. Ronald Reagan was the Trump of his time. Um, people don't know this or maybe forget because his image has been sanitized so uh, so completely by, by the media over the last, you know, what, 20, 15, 20 years. Um, but Reagan was considered kind of a nut job at the time. I mean, he he said things like uh, you know trees cause pollution, and um, he, I mean he was a, he was a right wing kook. Uh, there's no other way to put it. He he talked about you know potentially you know t turning um, turning Vietnam into into I believe a parking lot or pavement. I believe is what he said. Uh, he wanted to kind of go to. Go, uh, uh, be more aggressive against the Soviet Union. He he called people communists. I mean, the the way he dealt with student protesters in Berkeley is absolutely horrific and unconscionable. Uh, anyone ever read about that? 
uh, he's endorsed by the Klan. The, uh, there's a Grand Wizard of the Klan who says in 1980, well, actually, his platform is very much, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a, a, the Klan platform. Um, and Reagan wins. And he not only wins once, but he wins twice. And yeah. that is is this other turning point where, as, as well as you have, you know, declining the declining power of unions and the declining influence of unions within, within the Democratic Party, um, you also have, uh, with Reagan in power, um, and, and having won those huge landslides, this huge soul-searching with the Democratic Party where they say, well, wow, we, we've, we just keep losing, and we've lost now to these right-wing opponents several times and, and now in landslides, and we, we clearly have to change. That's that's Biden's calculus, and that's the calculus of every Democrat of that generation, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Schumer all these people who have been in, in power for years, you know, Clinton as well, they have all... what what they perceive themselves as doing is adapting themselves to the new political reality that, that happened after the 1970s, which is that the country moved right. And this is just where the country is. You can't do anything about this. You can't change it. You just have to go with it. Now, um, I would say that the success of Bernie Sanders in Burlington, which, you know, granted was a liberal town, but, um, you know, still, uh, uh, the fact that he was able to win against the conservative establishment of that city, which really had a hold on things and the, and the way that he governed, presents a possible other future that the Democrats never tried, um, even though they, they say they have, but they never tried. Um, uh, and I, I can go into that as well, if, uh, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is all really instructive. Let's, let's, let's carry this through. We're, this thing is going along. Unfortunately, we, you know, I, I talked, I pushed you to talk a lot about super Tuesday. Um, we talked obviously about this breaking news that Warren has dropped out of the race and what that might mean. Um, you know, let's, let's just gloss over this. I mean, again, I, I really want to encourage people to, to buy this book. We could, we could sort of spell out the argument piece by piece, but you know, uh, we wouldn't do it justice. And besides, you know, that would probably be uh, contrary to our purpose here. People go out, buy the book. It's like what, like 12 bucks from Verso. Verso works really hard. I think to make these titles very affordable. Um, you should pick this thing up because it, it, it really is a toolbox for people to understand the transformations that Joe Biden represents inside the Democratic Party mainstream. And, and, it, and it's really kind of um, our rationale for, for moving forward. Like whatever happens with the Bernie Sanders campaign, whatever happens with the Biden campaign, like this is this is like, you know, this is the oppo research, right? This is the playbook, the opponent's playbook. And um, the trajectory here is 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 really important for us to kind of grasp. Let's let's kind of let's you know let's let's take you know maybe another ten or fifteen minutes tops here because we're going long. Sure. And and maybe just give us a synthetic approach. Maybe not so much like argument by argument, sort of piece by piece mm. in, ter- in terms of laying out the outline of the book. But give us a synthetic approach, man. I mean, you've you know how DPS works. You've been on several times. You know, um, to carry us through like what what kind what. What is what is the Biden wing of the party's vision for the for for you know politics today? You know, you, you take in a lot of people like to look at his past as like aberrations, right? The mm-hmm. the crime bills, mm-hmm. right? Let's talk. We can talk about the crime bills, the bankruptcy bills, um, his support for the war in Iraq, yeah. You know, which is a divert a a a, 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 a course change for sure from his earlier um, opposition to the war in Vietnam. You know, but all of this really does come together. In a in a synthetic way to capture the essence of of what the movers and shakers inside the party characterize as as the politics of of of, of the possible, right? You see, you know, old old dried up hacks like James Carville being 
you know, uh, you know, being dragged onto MSNBC as this kind of like elder statesman. And he is absolutely on that, on that spectrum. Um, what are, what are the politics that Biden represents and what chances does it have in, in, in sort of being carried forward by future generations? Biden is a neoliberal. Uh, this is not, you know, people, people think this is some sort of, um, unfair slur to throw around now. Some people say that the word doesn't even mean anything anymore, but it does mean something. And back in the 1980s, uh, newspapers freely, uh, listed Biden as one of the, one, one of the members of the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party, as opposed to the kind of the New Deal wing, the, the remaining New Deal wing. Mm-hmm. And Biden's, I think the fundamental thing to know about Biden and to understand how he would potentially govern as a president and how he would uh, run against Trump is that Biden's entire vision is that when you are faced by the right wing in the United States, the only thing you can do is, uh, is pivot to the right and adopt their positions and accommodate them and just try and do things like them, but maybe not as badly. And what this means is that from the 80s until really today, Biden has been – he's had his fingerprints on nearly every terrible disaster for working and middle-class Americans um, at the behest of you know the U.S. right and the, and the corporations that back them um, that you can imagine. Welfare reform, NAFTA – you know, he voted for the balanced budget amendment three times, three years in a row. It's a miracle that didn't pass. It came often one or two votes short. Um, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, his bankruptcy bill. Uh, the, the the system of mass incarceration is a Biden creation. He was involved in that. Um, it wasn't just the 1984 crime bill. I mean, he was involved in all the bills in the 80s. Well, I'm going to say all the bills, but many of the major bills in the 1980s, the, the, the bill that established the 100 to 1 crack cocaine, uh, crack to powder cocaine ratio, that was Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, the, the immigration powers that Obama and now Trump had been using to terrorize communities across the United States, those were instituted under Clinton um, and Biden voted for them. Um, Biden also was the, the guy who does devised the uh, Plan Columbia which was uh, this Clinton-era uh, foreign policy strategy to to it was supposed to prevent violence happening in Central and South America and to stem immigration going to the United States and it did the exact opposite. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I won't go into it. I won't go into the details. But that's right. still a thing that I mean, that was what he did as vice president. As vice president, his plan was to do the exact same thing to stem the the immigration crisis. So he hasn't even learned from. His mistakes. He was defending the the 94 crime bill as late as 2016, and I, you know, um, the attempts to cut Social Security and Medicare, not just in the 80s, not just in the 90s, um, but in uh, as Obama's vice president, Biden was a doormat. He, Biden was maybe the worst negotiator uh, in the history of the Democratic Senate because he, you know, he masks his own weakness and his own inability to really uh, stand up to Republicans and the US right he masks it as this oh no I just I just want to work together with the other side and I want to you know I believe in compromise and coming together look at Biden's legislative history and this idea that he's a guy who accomplishes things great things because he can work with the other side is completely untrue the things that he accomplished in doing 
with things that were right-wing goals, things like welfare reform, which was which was the 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 holy grail, as Trent Lott put it, of the of the GOP legislative agenda. When the Republicans wanted to get certain goals of theirs uh, passed, you know, basically the rolling back of the New Deal, um, Biden could work with them because they wanted to work with them. When he was in the Obama administration, when he was vice president, when he his his role was uh, supposedly to use this this magic uh, Senate experience, this legislative uh, deal-making powers that he had, supposedly, to be able to bring Republicans in to buy into Obama's agenda, to pass things like hardship, to pass things like Obamacare. He couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't even get Democrats to sign on to these things because ultimately the, the, it's illusory that this idea that you can just sort of sit in a room with these people and just reason with them and get them to go your way – uh, we saw that with just recent. I mean, it's unbelievable. There was that Ezra Klein piece recently uh, that happened after the Super Tuesday loss. And he said, well, you know, the, the fact that Sanders lost the Super Tuesday, that, that Klobuchar and Buttigieg um, uh, endorsed Biden, I mean, that really shows that, that Sanders abandoning this, um, the, this, this ability or this attempt to – to forge coalitions and to persuade people is really going to hurt him. It's unclear how he's going to govern, and that's what really led Biden to get these endorsements. I mean, you have to be a five-year-old to believe that. I can't believe that someone who who writes professionally for uh, in politics would would actually seriously say those words. The reason Buttigieg and well, he, he doesn't call up people on their birthdays is what. Oh he yes, of course, Franco, of course, actually. yeah, exactly. That's, that's what he does. He doesn't I mean, do that. So if he, yeah, it's a, a couple birthday cards <laughs> exactly. go a long that way in convincing the the American ruling class to you know expropriate themselves. The reason Klobuchar yeah. and Buttigieg yeah. uh, endorsed Biden is not because <laughs> Sanders didn't you know the, the, didn't try hard enough to persuade them. It's because they are implacably opposed. To the vision that he represents, which would be yeah. bad yeah. for them, not just politically, because they, they lose out on donations from these industries that they uh, rely on, but also bad if they ever want to uh, go on a career afterwards, if they want to speak to banks and rack up uh, huge speaking fees, or they want to go and be uh, corporate lobbyists or sit on the board of some health insurance company and so on. And the, uh, the last thing I will say is, given Biden's record of just appeasing the right um, and and working to get their goals, uh, successfully working, I have to say, yeah, given credit, he did get things done. They were just all Republican uh, things. Um, the, the consequence of that is that as the Republican Party moves Further and further to the extreme right, in a, in a more, uh, you know, even this ultra plutocratic, plutocratic uh, uh, even more white supremacist direction. Um, Biden campaigning against these people, and even even if he manages to win, which I don't think he would, but even if he manages to win and he ends up governing, um, think about how someone whose entire philosophy is just based on try and move towards the right. However, however far to the right uh, that that part of the spectrum moves, think about what that means for how you will actually govern. And it's not um, uh, out of the question. And I would say it's it's almost guaranteed to happen that he will probably end up working with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, who he keeps saying that he can still work with, he can get things done. They will work to finally cut Medicare and Social Security to make huge changes to that. And when that happens. Get ready because you have just opened up another lane for a much more dangerous candidate than Donald Trump to run on the far right and to sort of poach right. some of these voters uh, uh, and, and take some of these more progressive positions that the Democrats have abandoned. That is Tucker Carlson is waiting in the wings oh, yeah. for that alliance to happen Absolutely. because he is a guy not unlike – 
um, you know, not unlike other far right economic populists, you know, of, of the past who are ready and willing and able to swoop in to offer a narrative that seems to make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Right. Of course, you have to overlook his xenophobia and his racism and his, you know, his his obvious like ruling class bias in a lot of cases is, is hatred for workers and ethnic minorities and all the rest of them. But um yeah, it's um, it's coming. That's a really, well, that's a really important. Maybe not. It's a really important. Um, maybe not. Let's not. Again, I don't want to. I don't want to be def- defeatist, and I don't want to be. Uh, oh, oh, sh- I'm, I'm sorry. Hypothetically, oh, should sure, should sure, that sure. alliance take shape? Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of hope, and I want to end on a hopeful oh, totally. note here. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I mean, should that alliance take shape? Should Biden be given the nomination? Let's be honest, he's got to beat Trump first. And I, as you, you rightly pointed to, there's a lot of shoulds and ifs in this in this uh, hypothetical yeah, situation. Interesting number of years of Trump, um, which, which, you know, would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're all yeah, looking for it. It would also give us the opportunity, you know, let's, let's not kid ourselves. You know, I mean, I don't think the – the Tucker Carlson wing of the conservative movement in the United States is going to be unchallenged. And we've got a very strong progressive democratic mm-hmm. socialist wing as mm-hmm. well. That's going to be thinking very seriously about how to develop institutional sources of power and, and maybe break away from this broken uh, coalition that, that will all be, uh, that will be all but delegitimized in that process of Biden trying to cut deals with Chuck Schumer, uh, sorry, with uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, Give us a – let's go out on a hopeful note. Oh, I, you yourself it. have been on the, the interwebs uh, you know, since the Super Tuesday results became evident, suggesting that you know, we should not lose hope, that Biden's a guy who you know, the more the American people see him, the less they like him. And now we have, we have uh, basically smoked him out of his hole, the hole that he's been hiding in for you know, the past year in some cases. Uh, so, so give us that rallying cry. I think it's a really important um, antidote to, to an episode I recorded with uh, Ben Burgess uh, this last week for the B-side, uh, wherein we were a little bit more gloom and doom. But you've got a, you've got a hopeful narrative. This I think there's some important reasons to, to uh, believe that, that things are going to get better. Uh, one is that, think about a week ago. Uh, it was conventional wisdom. It was it was known. It was everyone just was a hundred percent sure Biden was done. That's it. That's the end of his campaign. Where's he going? I watched uh, uh, when I was in Baltimore on, on the book tour. I watched him um, uh, after Nevada on MSNBC, uh, looking like a defeated man, like a tired, defeated man. Uh, within a within four days, a space of four days, that completely changed, and that can happen again. Um, right. that it can turn around like this happen in elections all the time there's always ups and downs uh, I think the other thing to, to keep in mind is the, sh- the, the race is now going to shift it's not going to be conservative states anymore it's going to be these uh, midwestern states um, where you know the, the African American population is not the same in every single place they, they you know all these different states have different cultures their own cultures uh, their own uh, brand of politics and that will change um, when we move into into the Midwest and, and some of these places. We'll see how that goes. No, 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 no. I listen to James Carver. <laughs> Melanin actually imparts uh, political ideology into the brain. <laughs> Did you know that? I, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, there's this thing. There's this thing called the black vote. <laughs> 
It's not racist at all. It's not. No, it's not. It's, I know what you're thinking. It sounds super. It sounds really fucking racist. It's not. It's woke, Branko. Okay. It's woke. My, my bad. My bad. Yeah. I, I take that back. And, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I saw MSNBC Maddow uh, interview Bernie and, you know, suggest that he dodged the question on race. And in fact, he, all he did was just suggest that that's an absurdly racist yeah. <laughs> uh, question. And I'm not going to go there. Uh, but no, that's dodging. That's the subtitle of the of no, little clip here on MSNBC.com. I'm staring at right the, now. The, so it's important to, to point that out the, anyway. I digress no, 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 for sure. as always. I think the other thing we have to know is that it, it is inconvenient that the next debate is going to be after the next set of primaries. Uh, but if Sanders has a good showing or even just, uh, you know, he, he hangs on and it, it stays sort of um, a, a rough parody, um, then on the 15th, there will be a debate um, between Biden and Sanders. And Biden has been coasting by for more than a year now. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not for more than, for, for a year, for a year, uh, on minimal unscripted public appearances, on minimal face-to-face interviews. Uh, he has barely campaigned often. Uh, in debates, they have been cluttered with people um, who have just been, you know, uh, often just irrelevant figures who, you know, the media will, will jump on from, from month to month. With the result that Biden speaks about 10 minutes, uh, 10 incoherent minutes a debate, he has to put together one minute long answers or 30 second replies that are, he usually stops before he's even finished. Um, they're often nonsensical and going bizarre, uh, in some cases, racist directions. Biden is on the 15th of March going to, I mean, that, that's not possible anymore for, for one, because he's going to have a lot more media scrutiny, um, even if a lot of it is positive and glowing. But the other thing is that Biden is now going to have to be on stage for 40 to 60 minutes, uh, giving much longer answers, having to respond in real time to things that Sanders is saying, uh, not just about his record, but but stances that Sanders takes. Um, and I, I mean, maybe he can pull through, but I think that is gonna, that may end up being something of a turning point. At the very least, it'll be crucial. It'll be a big thing for Sanders to try and turn us around because the more media exposure Biden has, the more uh, people see that he is frankly just not up to this job uh, anymore. Um, they will start changing what they think is electable. So I think those are the things we have to look at. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that this is definitely going to happen, but those are the the pivot points that the campaign is going to turn around on. And I think we also have to, you know, let's look at where Elizabeth Warren goes, um, whether she ends up uh, holding out for a a Biden cabinet position or whether she, she, you know, throws caution to the wind and says, hey, you know what, what's, best for the progressive movement is best for me and she she throws him behind sanders if she does that that will also be a big turning point but but remains to be seen for all these things yeah that's right march 10th is the next big day it's just going to be a day out from when this airs um you know not a lot of delegates at stake to be honest you know not a small state not large geographically speaking states but but small populations not a lot of delegates uh, up for grabs and in fact we're not going to really have many delegates up for grabs until March 17th, which, as you mentioned, will be after the debate, which is huge. We need to get, we need to win Florida. Desperately need to win Florida. We need to win or, or have a good showing in Florida. We need to win Illinois. Uh, we need to have a good showing in Ohio. And then, you know, this thing's not really going to be, you know, there's no going to be no nail in the coffin until April 28th, right? When we see, you know, the Northeast, Connecticut, mm-hmm. Delaware, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, 
Um, these are all aside from Delaware, of course, it's a much smaller state, fewer delegates up for grabs. Thank God. Uh, which is Biden's home state, of course. Uh, all of those states are very winnable uh, by, by the for, for the Sanders camp and uh, a lot of delegates up for grabs. So, yeah, I mean, we, we're settling for the long haul. It seems like, you know, um, it seems kind of uh, gloom and doomy around gloomy and doomy around the left these days. But, man, we've got uh, almost two months left. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know if that's like a you know, I, I was encouraged before I spit that sentence out. And then after I spit the sentence out, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. two more months of this shit. I, I will say this. It's, I, I prefer this to the, the whole of 2019, which was just this huge, it's just this long period of limbo where you don't know yeah, how things are going right. to fall. Nothing's happening. It's all this is just sort of polling going up and down. And it's just, you know, the, the, all this is sort of just anxiety about what's going to happen the year after, but without the trigger being able to be pulled. So now that the fight is actually happening, um, I think this is a much better position to be in than, than uh, at least as, as an observer, you know, uh, than uh, 2019. No question. I think once the reality sinks in that Biden's back in the race uh, and we get our feet underneath of us, I think this is going to we're going to we're going to rebound more powerfully than ever. Remember that we all thought this was over when uh, Sanders was hospitalized, mm -hmm. you know, some months ago. Um, and, and, and look how he bounced back he, he better, more powerful than ever. So people knock on doors, make those phone calls, you know, uh, donate. I donated last night. What little money I have to donate, 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 donate. It shows the mainstream media that we're not going away. If nothing else, they cannot ignore these fundraising totals. And um, even though they will try. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of clarity you're offering here. Everybody go out and pick up this book. It's Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, out from Verso Press in 2020. Branko Marchatich is the author and my guest. And uh, a real solid, a real solid bro. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Well, thank you. I don't, actually, Thanks I don't know if that's going to be uh, good for my career that you said that or not. I'm not <laughs> but oh, I appreciate yeah. it nonetheless. Bro is gender neutral these days. You got a big schedule ahead of yourself. Uh, Chris Hayes, if you're listening to the show, <laughs> uh, book this man. I want to see you on MSNBC. Uh, I want to see you make make the rounds here, that if nothing great. else. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. If nothing else, these hacks need somebody to argue against oh, for once oh, rather I, than just sort of uh, you know chirping with the chorus. I would love to bring my case uh, onto MSNBC if, if any MSNBC producers are, are listening. I would also – by the way, it's funny because in, in New Zealand – Calling someone a bro is not a negative thing at all. It's like, you know, just like saying, you know, it's like, hey, bro, what's up? Or, How you going, yeah, bro? Yeah. Uh, it's more like bro. Is it bro? So is it like yeah, that? I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, what, that's the way a, that's I an Australian it. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was similar to Australia. Very similar. I mean, well, not similar. Yeah. Identical, identical. Yeah. And so, so it's bro out west in the, in the US, nah, bro. We do, we don't and then that. it's bro in, in Australia. Yeah, we don't get the dialect. But, um, the, uh, but, you know, it's like, it's not a negative thing. And so it's funny that now, like in the U.S. context, if someone calls me a bro, even though in New Zealand I wouldn't like, I would not even blink at that. Here I'm like, oh wait, did you, what did you just say? How, yeah. What the hell what did you, you mean say? by that? Yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, yeah. Anyway, real solid, bro. Uh, this guy over here, <laughs> Branko Marchatich. I hope to see you on a lot of outlets. People should check out your appearances on Democracy Now. That's a really important and older uh, progressive audience. Uh, that needs need to be hearing these these this case there's, against there's a Joe second Biden, part so. coming. I just want to say there's a second part that will be coming. Uh, I did one interview with them, and that there's a continuation, a longer version that they're going to post. So so keep your eyes out for that. Yeah, 
keep your eyes peeled on democracy now. I know a lot of my audience has has given up on them <laughs> and their championing of various wars and interventions, but um, but we need those. We need those uh, old '60s radicals on our side as well. So I'm glad to see that you did that. So once again, as always, uh, Branko Marx teach a pleasure. Uh, always great to be on. Thanks for having me.